Those of you that follow me on Facebook will recognize what I'm about to say. I oftentimes spend hours in the morning finding photos that are posted or I post them, and then I find quotes to go with the photos. And the idea of finding the quote is to enhance the photo or the photo to enhance the quote. And it takes a a really long time to get the right quote with the right picture. So what I've done today is I have picked out a few quotes and I'm going to share with you how my mind works when I read the quote for the first time. And that might give you some insight into um, maybe nothing at all. (laughs) So um, the first quote I posted yesterday. If wool shrinks when you wash it, why don't sheep get smaller in the rain? I got nothing. (laughs) But I like the quote. And sometimes we need to have a little sense of humor as we go through our day because it can be confusing. Now, Two weeks ago, I went to a Catholic high school, and I gave a presentation as part of a panel. We had a Hindu, a Jew, a Christian, and myself. And the topic was uh, something to do with morality in the 21st century. What good is it? What does it do? Does it make a difference? And everybody had their own take, that's for sure. But I wanted to have a Buddhist take on it, of course. And so I talked about the five precepts. What else would you talk about? Morality is how we perceive at a personal level what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad, what is skillful, what is unskillful. And the five precepts give us a reference point in order to have correct intention, correct speech, and correct action. Now, I said to myself, well, if we speak skillfully, if we act skillfully, if we think skillfully, what possible good could it do in the world? And then I thought about Mahayana Buddhism. Mahayana Buddhism being the reform movement. Those are the Protestants. (laughs) And what they said about the ultimate reality of Buddhism is this. They said that all things are interconnected and interdependent. And I thought to myself, if I am skillful in what I think, say, and do, there is a ripple effect throughout the entire universe. I can make a difference just by being more skillful. And the immediate difference in my life will be that I suffer less. And the ultimate difference will be everyone else suffers less as well. Just wanted to share that. Now, I'm reading a post on a Catholic uh, Facebook page about Thomas Merton. I really like Thomas Merton. I've been to Gethsemane a couple times. I've 
got a picture of myself by his grave, which made me happy, but probably didn't do anything for him. And, and they said, well, you know, Thomas Merton was hanging out with those Buddhists, and those Buddhists are atheists. And not only that, when he befriended the Buddhists, he got electrocuted in Thailand at a conference, which implies, perhaps, that God was angry, decided to do Thomas in. So I had to respond. I just couldn't let that sit there and have people read it without any kind of response from me. I find, as I respond on Facebook, it's probably similar to, tweet, to tweeting, which I don't do, but you want to get as much information in as few words as possible. <laughs> this is what I came up with with Buddhism and gods. Not God, but gods. <laughs> The Buddha was a theist and never blamed the gods of India for human suffering. It was a human condition of greed, hatred, and delusion, he said, that caused attachment, aversion, and desire, ending in suffering. Nirvana, the end of human suffering, was realized through practice of the eightfold path. The Buddha did not defeat death. He defeated birth. With birth comes sickness, old age, and death. Nirvana, the ultimate goal, is the unborn and undying found in Buddhism. Succinct. <laughs> and pretty much the whole Buddhist path right there in that one paragraph. I was so proud of myself. <laughs> and people would read that, and I got hardly any likes at all. And I'm thinking, oh, no, they didn't understand. And I don't know why I should assume that everyone who reads what I post will understand what I say. And that's why I'm speaking about it today. So, was the Buddha an atheist? Was he an agnostic? Well, the Buddha was a Hindu. That, that wasn't a term they used back at the time of the Buddha, but... We look at it as being Hinduism, and he understood the hierarchy of gods and did not deny that they existed, but he found them lacking. And the most obvious lack was they could or would not end human suffering. So he took it upon himself without blaming the gods or asking the gods to solve the issue, he said, I've discovered why humans suffer. We have, like, a lot of greed, hatred, and delusion. And that causes us aversion, attachment, and desire. And that causes us to suffer because things are never the way they could or should be. Which is why I don't post political posts on my Facebook page. Because things have never been the way they should be. Then they said, Jesus defeated death. Though he had to die to do it. And the Buddha didn't say there was anything wrong with death. He said there was something wrong with birth. Because when we're born, 
we're going to suffer until we die. We're going to get old and sick. Wow. And then we just, like, die. And then we get to be reborn again. So we can get old and sick and die one more time. And then again. And then again. So he said, you know, if you're born, you're going to die. There's nothing I can do for you about death. But I can tell you how not to be born. Because what's being born is our karma. And I can tell you how to end your karma. And if you've ended your karma, you'll never be born again to get sick, to get old, to die. And I call this end of birth nirvana. And as a side note, when you achieve nirvana, you don't have to suffer anymore either. But he didn't say, I'm going to show you how not to exist. He didn't say that. He didn't go there. He said, I will show you how to exist without birth. And there is nothing on this planet that we live on that wasn't born, that didn't have a first cause. So it's an incredible statement to make. And and it's a profound thing to think about. How to exist without being born. But because of that, There's no death. In Buddhism, the only thing that's unborn and undying is nirvana, the final goal of all Buddhists who are practicing. So I wish I could have shared that with a couple of those comments, but I couldn't. So I shared it with you. Now, this is a Thomas Merton quote. This blew my mind when I found it, and I posted it on a picture, which didn't get very many likes either. (laughs) And I'm thinking, you know, I get 200 likes with a cat picture (laughs) and 40 likes with Thomas Merton. And I'm thinking, what's wrong with the world? (laughs) Thomas Merton said, in humility is the greatest freedom. As long as you have to defend the imaginary self that you think is important, you lose a piece of your heart. As soon as you compare that shadow with the shadows of the other people, you lose all joy because you have begun to trade in unrealities and there is no joy in things that do not exist. Is that an amazing quote from a Catholic priest, monk? Wow. It's so Buddhist, or it's so Catholic, or it's both. So there's freedom in humility, not taking credit, not having to be the person that does all the good work, but simply allowing the good work to occur. And the shadow of self. And I thought back to when I was stuck in the dilemma of what a self is. Who am I? And, and it took me months to come to the Bodhi Tree used bookstore and find a book that was the key to my understanding of who I am. And that was Spectrum of Consciousness, Ken Wilbur. I still have that same dog-eared copy that is highlighted on almost every page. It was the most profound thing I had ever read. 
And it cleared up so many inconsistencies in my life. And he said it is a rung of consciousness. That each step, there's a certain level of who we are and who we aren't. And then there's a sort of ultimate transpersonal place that in Zen or meditation practice we're trying to get to. Not to deny the other rungs of our consciousness because they are important. They are the building blocks of who we are at a relative level only. But there's an ultimate level of who we are that has the freedom, that lacks the shadow. So I'm reading all of this stuff and I'm saying to myself, well, how can I get there? I want to go there and see what it's like. And I don't want to take any psychedelic drugs to do it. Because that requires you then to be dependent on drugs to have that experience. And that in itself is a large limitation. Can I do it naturally? Can I find all the parts of who I am that are hidden from me in my everyday consciousness through my meditation practice? Can I just finally calm down that discursive thought that keeps telling me what to do and what not to do? You know, and, and yes, it's possible. There are many kinds of meditation that we can do that allow us to, for the moment, reduce that discursive thought, that static, that stuff that's always going in our head. And we come to these places of altered states of consciousness that are available to us all the time without any kind of drug, And it will allow us to see ourselves in so many different ways. All these different ways, like a kaleidoscope, if you will. And then, and then, there is a certain sense of freedom. You come to this place where you don't have to be who you think you are. And that allows you the ability to transcend and respond to every situation you find yourself in and not have to be that limited, self-centered, fearful being that we find in our reaction to the world sometimes. So when I read this from Thomas Merton, I could tell he's been doing some meditation, whether it be the prayer of quiet, you know, or the rosary, or even Buddhist meditation. He's been doing something, and he has come to that place of transcendence in his practice which for a Catholic may not be a good thing. Because for a Catholic, and I might say probably for every Christian, the idea of relationship is profound and important. That you always need to be in relationship to God or Jesus. And the less self you have, the more obvious the relationship is. But for a Buddhist, that's not the case. We fall out of relationship in a particular way and come to the relationship of interconnectedness and interdependence. We become in relationship to everything, not just the ultimate one thing. And that, for me, was just an amazing idea that I didn't have to be in relationship just to one thing to to have credibility 
What I needed to do instead is to dissolve myself into everything. And through the knowing and experience of that, come to the understanding. So I read that yesterday, I posted that yesterday, and I just, it really allows you to think about your life in a much different way. How lucky am I to have two hours every morning to go through this kind of stuff, to see the profound insights people in all eras have had about life on this planet. This is from the book Siddhartha. They both listened silently to the water, which to them was not just water, but the voice of life, the voice of being, the voice of perpetual becoming. Bang! Well, did I smile or what when I read that? You know, what we're talking about there is we are never the same mind twice. We are always in a constant state of becoming something else. We never finish. And in that, we have a potential for growth forever. Because when you stop becoming something, you hit that plateau, it's an illusion, it doesn't exist. That's when you need to go down to the river and just watch it flow. And go, yeah, I forgot. I'm part of that flow too. Sometimes I get caught on the sticks and the rocks and the boulders in the river, but I always find a way to release myself and continue the journey. So as long as I'm becoming something, I'm alive and well. Once I think I've attained something, I got a problem. Because there's nothing to attain. Good old Siddhartha. Man. Louis L'Amour, Louis L'Amour, I think he wrote Western novels. You know what he also wrote in one of his novels that sounds to me so Buddhist? He said, there will come a time when we believe everything is finished. That will be the beginning. Whoa, are you kidding me? (laughs) You know, isn't that just amazing how we just work so hard to finish the project, whatever that might be? You know, it might be graduation, it might be our life, it might be our relationship, we work really hard, we finally finish it, and then we realize it's just the beginning. So before I became a monk, I was like this guy who read all these Buddhist books and had these fantasies about monk life and how wise and how much leisure time they would have, and it was just sounded like a great way to live out the few years I have left, and I continued to work, and then I took the eight precepts of a novice, of a postulant, and the ten precepts of a novice monk, and then I took the, the over 227 precepts of a Mahayana monk, and my teacher came up to me, Reverend Karuna, and she said, okay, this is where you start. This is where you start being a monk. And I thought to myself, well, how about all those years when I was Becoming a monk. Didn't I finally achieve it when I became fully ordained? And she said, no. That's where you start. 
So it painted my ordination in a much different way. And then I still had five more years of apprenticeship. And then I was given the red robe. And it, it's really nice looking. And it has a sort of gold thread. And it's, you know, it catches your attention immediately. And that was because I had finished my apprenticeship. And now I could have my own students, my own temple, or I could stay there and just work and do what I was always doing. But I was given permission to leave if I wanted to because I had finished all the things necessary to become a monk and be on his or her own. So that was another beginning, another start, you know. And, and it continues even today. You know, you, you get some certificates, you get some accolades, you think, oh, now I've done it, nothing else for me to do. And the, sure enough, the next day there's something else to do. And it just continues and continues. So there's never an end. There's always just the beginning. Lao Tzu said this, Kindness in words create confidence. Kindness in thinking creates profoundness. Kindness in giving creates love. I'm going, wow, you know? That is so cool because they use the word kindness before they use the word love. And everybody loves the word love because everything is about love. And I have gone into churches and just seen love written on the wall in 10-foot letters. It's almost overpowering. And you know what? I, I don't really have that capacity to love. You know, it's like the strongest attachment humans will ever have. People have loved each other so much, they've stayed together for 50 years. I'm going, that's attachment. 50 years? Are you kidding me? But we honor that attachment. We say that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the true love, the kind of love that doesn't go away, the kind of attachment that's never broken. And then I thought to myself, well, what did the Buddha say about attachment? He said it always causes us to suffer because we're never attached in the way we want to be very long. It always keeps changing. And the things we're attached to keep changing as well. So they're changing, we're changing, the chains are being pulled and then released and pulled and released. Where do we add the freedom? Can you be free and be in a relationship? Can you break up with the one you love the most in the world and help them pack? Because they're off to another relationship or another adventure or another way of looking at their life. And here, Lao Tzu is saying, you know, man, it's all about kindness. Be kind. If they want to go, be kind and help them pack. If they want to stay, be kind and let them. Tell them you're happy that they're staying. And it gives you profound thoughts if you're kind. It allows you to look at the world in a much different way. When you see all the strife, all the struggle in the world, and then you apply kindness to all those situations, it changes the way you perceive them. You know? It's not a big game. There are no winners. We're just sort of like all in this together. And nobody comes out alive. 
So while we're still here working on ourselves, be kind to those around us who don't understand what you're posting on Facebook. (laughs) Okay, this one. This is a good one. When was the last time you did something for the first time? And I had people comment last month, you know, two years ago I did something for the first time. I've had a boring life. And then this one person wrote, just now. And I'm going, right on, absolutely, it's always the first time. We've never done this before. It looks familiar, it might feel familiar, it might seem familiar, but it's all different. And we're doing it for the first time. And when we do our life for the first time, every time, it becomes magical. It is never boring. You do not know how it's going to turn out. It's one big surprise after the other. How exciting is that? And you see people get caught in, in, in their job or their relationship, and they just go, oh, it's the same old stuff all the time. I don't know how much longer I can do this. You know, and just do it now. You'll be surprised. Yeah, so I love that quote. That was a good one. That got more likes. You know, there was no name. It was an anonymous, probably, it is probably attributed to somebody, but I couldn't track it down. But I give you something to do, Jerry. Just do Google search. When was the last time we did something for the first time? There you go. You know? Okay, this quote is from Suzuki Roshi. San Francisco Zen Center, he said, there are, strictly speaking, no enlightened people. There is only enlightened activity. Wow, huh? Huh? Okay, that one just fell flat on Facebook. (laughs) Now, I thought to myself, well, why would he say that? And he's a Zen guy, and he's a Mahayana guy, and he's a Zen master, and in their tradition, they have something called emptiness, selflessness, that there are no people walking around. There's a bunch of aggregates walking around, the five aggregates, form, sensation, perception, volition, and consciousness, which we assume is a way to describe who we are without saying we're one thing, but we're always many things connected We're always in process and never an event. So he was saying that the enlightened person, and I am surprised how many people consider themselves to be enlightened. I've had them email me. (laughs) You know, and I'm thinking, I don't know if you really know what it is. You know, and you might want to be that, but it doesn't sound like a real, you know, prize to attain. Enlightenment. Why would that be the case? Well, the problem with enlightenment is you just see the suffering. You know? You don't see the happiness anymore. You see everybody is suffering in the world all the time. 
because it's never the way it's supposed to be for them. And your job as an enlightened bodhisattva person is to reduce their suffering. And so you say, okay, how many people are suffering in the world today? And then you say, well, maybe 7 billion. Well, how long will it take me to end suffering for 7 billion? And then you say, forever. And it's not really, you know, we have this thing, oh, I'm enlightened, I can read minds, you know, there's just an aura around me, everything is going to be wonderful. I think it's exactly the opposite. So the enlightened activity that he's speaking about is the activity of kindness. And the activity of kindness reduces suffering. And the enlightened person may be able to see that kindness now is their directive. As the Dalai Lama said, I have a religion, it is the religion of kindness. And now through that kindness, you are reducing suffering. And it's a never-ending task, and you will never complete it. You will always be in a constant state of becoming someone who ends suffering for others. And you too will be suffering because you have not achieved nirvana. But now your suffering is dedicated to the suffering of others. I will suffer for them. Which means you're going to be suffering a lot. Because they are always suffering. So how do you come to that place of suffering in your own life and the suffering in the lives of others and not just kill yourself? How do, you, how do you avoid your own termination? Because you look at the world as being so bleak and so hopeless. And I think a lot of people right now, today, are looking at the world as being bleak and hopeless no matter what we do, and we all feel insignificant and impotent and not able to help. I know there's a question last time, but I feel that I need to help. How can I help? Just be kind. You got the people wearing the red hats, be kind to them. People wearing the blue hats, be kind to them. Which one is right? They're both right. That's the problem. Everybody's right. Do I want to change their mind to make them right like I am? I can't. Can't change anybody's mind. And believe me, I've tried. But I've been working on changing my own mind for 20 or 30 years and still haven't succeeded. That's my mind. I get to think every day with that mind and it still thinks like it wants to think. You know? So what do I need to do? I need to let it think like it wants to think and not pay too much attention and not think it's right. Think it's just sort of opinionated about stuff. And sometimes those opinions are based on false information and so I have to go, even if I have a strong opinion about something, I'm probably wrong. That's where the humility comes in. That's where the selflessness comes in. And then you ask yourself, well, who has that opinion? What part of me is producing that opinion? Is it the real me? Is it the essence of me? Is it the true me? And the further we get into Buddhism and our meditation practice, we realize there is no essence, there is no true me. It's simply a process that keeps changing because the conditions that create the process are changing. Man. So it's a tough one. But if we feel that we need to do something, 
we need to do it. And then we have to understand that there are some things we don't do because it leads to more suffering rather than less. And the wisdom we acquire through our practice allows us to see the difference. And that's the hard part. That's why we have to keep practicing. So we know when to do and when not to do, to find that balance, to reduce that suffering. The real voyage of discovery consists of not seeking new landscapes, but having new eyes. Having new eyes. We probably all know someone who went to India to find the true meaning of their spiritual practice. And they dressed in white, and they went to the ashram, and they became vegetarians. And then they came back and they said, well, you know, it was really a nice experience, but I'm pretty much still the same person. I just have a little more baggage now, or I have a little less baggage. And one of the stories I love about this kind of quote would be the man who comes home and he drops his key by the door and can't find it. His neighbor sees him drop the key by the door, but the man, rather than looking by the door, goes to the corner of the yard to look for the key. And his neighbor said, I saw you drop the key by the door. Why are you going to the corner of your yard to look for it? He says, because there's more light over here. (laughs) So if you can't find it where you are, you're not looking in the right place. (laughs) Okay, this is a good one. This is a classic one. This is a primordial one. Does the walker choose the path or the path the walker? Does the walker choose the path or the path the walker? So when I came to Buddhism, I found out that there was a path. And I said, I'm going to choose that path. You know, and so you choose the path and you look at all the steps and you sort of figure out in your own mind and in your own life, how are you going to walk on that path? And then you've been walking on the path for a while, and you say to yourself, well, I don't know if the path is the goal, or the goal is the path, or if the path will lead me to the goal. I don't know if the path is that important anymore. And if you've been doing it for a while, and if you've seen the results of walking on the path, even if you want to get off the path, the path says no. Now the path chooses you which is fine, because ultimately we're going to have to leave the path forever in order to achieve nirvana. The path is only designed to get us to the other shore. And sometimes it seems like a really long time and we're not going to do it, but the path says, no, you're doing fine. There's a story that Jack Cornfield told years ago on one of his cassette tapes. Remember cassette tapes? Yeah. And, and he said, you know, I was uh, in Asia and I was studying and the master was very confusing. Theravada Buddhist elder monk. Because to some of the students, he'd say, no, 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 do this. And it was the exact opposite of what he told the other students. 
So Jack Kornfield couldn't understand why he kept giving all these different directions to different students to get to the same place. So he asked his master. He went up and said, why do you do that? Which, of course, is what Americans do, you know. <laughs> we want to know. And the master looked at him and said, well, I see the path clearly. And I see sometimes they're a little bit to the left. So I say, no, more to the right, more to the right. And sometimes they're a little more to the right. I say, more to the left, more to the left. The students can't see it, but the master could. So sometimes when our teachers give us these suggestions on how we should act or practice or see the world, what they're doing is they're saying, this is how I see it. This is how I see the path. And you haven't quite got there yet. And so let me help you see the path the way I do. That only works up to a point. Because that's their path. It's not your path. You got different karma. You got to find your own path. And if your path seems too clear and obvious, it's probably somebody else's. So you got to keep working on yourself with the help of others who are telling, them, telling you what they do, but not telling you what you should do. That's what I think. So I've always been a little resistant when people tell me what to do, because I say to myself, how the hell do they know? <laughs> and in a lot of cases, they do know, but I was too stupid to see that. So I kept doing it my way, and it took twice as long to figure it out. If I had only listened, I could have shortened it by months or years, my path. But I just move slowly in the direction I think I should be going, and I'm waiting for the signs that I'm on the wrong path, which is more suffering rather than less. So if what I'm doing is creating suffering in my life, I'm not doing it right. If what I'm doing is creating less suffering, no matter what other people think, I am doing it right. And if I'm creating less suffering in other people's lives, I'm really doing it right. That's what I think. Always remember that you are absolutely unique, just like everyone else. And this stimulated relative and ultimate for me. I'm going, yeah, we're all so unique at a relative level. We've all had our own unique karma and experiences and education and situations. And nobody else has ever had that before in the way we have for the entire history of humanity. Nobody has ever lived our life before. How special are we? Relative level. And yet, we're all interconnected and interdependent, and we're not unique except at a relative level. We are part of a giant community of everything at an ultimate level. So the dance we do is unique and everyone. I'm just like everyone, but in my own unique way. And that gives us a sense of self, which is really important, and the community gives us a sense of selflessness, which is really important. And those two things propel, propel our practice and propel our growth. Being something 
and not being someone. Can we do that in our practice? And I think we can. I think it's possible. But it's really hard not to get caught in who you are and not to think you're the most special and the only one. And a good way to monitor or measure your spiritual practice is how much does everyone mean to me? And at some point in your evolution as a spiritual person, you will find everybody else has more value than you do. That you are less important than they are. Humility. And that you find helping others gives you happiness and pleasure. I posted a podcast a couple weeks ago about Mitch the dog. This was recorded back, I think, in 2012 or 2011. I was giving a talk at a Center for Spiritual Living in Simi Valley. And I talked about Mitch. And Mitch was a dog that we had for many years. And finally, his, his hind legs went out because he had some German shepherd in him. And, and it was tragic to see him go downhill so fast. And finally, out of compassion, we just put him to sleep because he was suffering so much which, of course, is another dilemma that pet owners have to face. Do I, do I take the dog out because of compassion, or do I let him die naturally and learn all the lessons he needs to learn about life and death? And it's, it's a crapshoot. It's a flip of the coin. Some animals die really well. Some don't die well at all. And there you are being their protector and caregiver, and you have to make the decision by your personal experience with them, will they die well? And I thought one cat that I let die naturally would die well, and she had the hardest time in dying. It was just so sad. It just caught me by surprise. And then two years ago, we had a cat, little Leo the cat, and Leo had had health issues for two years. It was a homeless cat had found a backyard, and, and it just it never really got well. Well, maybe two months, it, it was just normal. And the rest of the time, it was just suffering. And finally, it was time for it to die. The kidneys had stopped, and it was going. So it was Christmas Eve. I'm thinking, wow, I wonder if little Leo's going to die on Christmas Eve. And then I turned on the TV, and I turned on the channel with the Pope, was giving his talk on Christmas Eve. And little Leo was lying next to the TV and listening to the Pope. (laughs) (laughs) And then little Leo just sort of died. It just peacefully stopped breathing, you know? I'm thinking, how lucky little Leo was to have the Pope help him die, (laughs) you know? So, but that's that's not necessarily going to be the case every time. So Mitch... I would carry Mitch up and down the stairs. I live on the second floor of the Zendo, and we have little stairs, and his back legs were not working well, so I would pick him up and carry him up. And he's about 70 pounds, you know? He was a moderately sized dog. And, and I thought to myself, as I take him downstairs at 5 in the morning so he can go wet the grass, I thought to myself, I wonder if I'm going to get a heart attack. I'm not in very good shape. Or maybe that stroke... And me and Mitch will go out together, you know? (laughs) But rather than any of that negative stuff happening, only positive stuff happening. I became stronger physically because I lifted and carried this guy up and down the stairs four or five times a day. 
And mentally, I had this relationship already with Mitch, but it came so much deeper and so much, prof- and so much more profound. And then I realized that I was getting great happiness making him happy. That when he was happy and wasn't suffering, I was at my happiest. And I thought to myself, yeah, that I see as being part of the spiritual path. When you're helping others and then their happiness becomes your happiness, you're making progress. So Mitch was a good teacher, taught me a lot. You know? and, then, and then he died, and then I was sad to see him go. But what did the Buddha say? He said, well, if they're going to be born, they're going to die. And if you really love them, it's going to hurt you. But if you're kind to them, that will alleviate some of the hurt. And then, last but not least, Pablo Picasso. I found a quote by him. He said, I'd like to live as a poor man with lots of money. (laughs) Well, I, I love that dichotomy, don't you? You know, because it's like you're pretending to be poor. And, you know, and, and I think for me what that means, he'd like to live a life of simplicity and not have to give up his money. And can we live a life of simplicity, whether we're rich or poor? We can, but in one instance, if you're rich, it's your idea. If it's poor, it's a matter of circumstance. It's a little harder to accept the simplicity if you're poor than if you're rich. So can we have a life of simplicity no matter what rung of the ladder, the monetary ladder we find ourselves on? Can we see that simplicity is a gift rather than a burden? That it allows us to have so much more freedom rather than less? And it keeps our mind free from all the attachments that accumulate. One of the monks at our center was offered a larger room to live in. And he said, no, no, this, my, my room is fine. If I got a bigger room, I just have more stuff. You know, and that's sort of like it is, you know. No matter how big your house is, it's never big enough. So I've lived in a room for many years now, and it's fine. It's, it's cluttered, but it's cluttered in a comfortable way. And I know where everything is. And if I start to straighten up and move stuff around, I'm going to be completely lost. So those are a few of the things I wanted to share with everybody today about my idea of what I post and why and how many great quotes there are out there. There's Brainy quote, there's Good Reads quote. And some of the quotes on Good Reads allows you to find the book it came from and then get the book and then just enjoy the whole book rather than just one sentence or two. It also is a wonderful way of looking at the world to start your day. A couple positive quotes or inspirational quotes or insightful quotes allow you to see that your mundane, everyday existence is magical and always for the first time. 